Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin this morning, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the privilege and opportunity to gather together this morning to study your word. We thank you that you have spoken truly to us, that you have given us a sufficient revelation that on the basis of what you have revealed, we can know absolute truth. Father, we thank you that it is your word that teaches us about who you are, about who we are, about the need for man's salvation because of sin, and about the perfect gift of salvation which you have given to us so graciously through the substitutionary spiritual atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Father, we thank you for uh, this nation in which we live, the freedom we have. We pray that you would continue to uh, give us security as a nation, that you would continue to protect our borders, watch over our president and uh, all of our civilian as well as military leaders. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray that we might have our confidence in your word uh, strengthened and that we would be responsive to the challenge to trust your word wholly. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're continuing our study this morning on can we trust the Bible? How do we know that this isn't just some book cobbled together by various people over the years? And it's just a collection of nice things, perhaps. It's got a lot of wonderful truth in it, and but it is not something that we should take all that seriously. After all, everybody has their truth. The Hindus have their truth. The Buddhists have their truth. Everybody has some sort of holy book. Why should we think that the Bible is any different? And what we have seen in our studies so far is the Bible makes a unique claim to be not a record of man's uh, religious experiences, but the breathed-out Word of God. That is, God originates the Scripture, does not originate with man, although the Scriptures are revealed through man and written by uh, human instruments called apostles and prophets. And these men did not were not dictated to, uh, except for a few uh, situations in the Scripture. They were, uh, their writing was overshadowed or superintended by God the Holy Spirit in such a way 
that what they wrote was protected from uh, being uh, from including error, and it allowed for their own human personalities, vocabulary, background, education to come through, and that these works were preserved by God the Holy Spirit down through the centuries and are available to us today. We looked at this in the biblical claims for truth. We began to look at some of, at how we validate this. You can't look, I pointed out, you can't look at the scriptures from some uh, rationalistic or empirical uh, framework. You can't come to the Bible and say, okay, it has to meet some external standard to be true. Because then what you are saying is that God must meet some external standard, that there's some uh, criterion, some standard, some basis of evaluation that even God must meet. And that would mean that there was something higher than God, which violates your very definition of God. God is the ultimate authority. Truth is what it is because God is truth and he says things are the way they are. So there must be some sort of criterion. Well, it's not a criterion to prove the Bible, but it is a criterion whereby we can look at the Scriptures and see if indeed we just simply put our brain in neutral, as so many in the uh, secular world think. The Christians are just those mindless robots who put their uh, brain in neutral and go on and and, uh, believe that the Bible is some divinely inspired book. Well, how superstitious and backward can you really be? But the reality is that the people who are throwing stones at the Bible, despite their uh, high IQs, despite their multiplicity of advanced degrees, usually haven't spent enough time studying the Bible or they're twisting the facts because, as the Bible points out, men do not want to submit to the authority of God. That's the ultimate issue. It's not history. It's not science. It's not any of the other things that that people bring up against the Bible. It is a matter of the fact that sinful, rebellious creatures do not want to submit to the authority of the Creator. So rather than do so, what they do is say, well, the Creator really hasn't spoken. There really isn't a Creator. So we don't have to obey Him. So the issue is that we have to understand here is that the problem isn't intellectual, it's not historical, it's not scientific. The problem is one of spiritual authority. Nevertheless, I think we can demonstrate certain things about the Bible that uh, validate it, and in the minds of for, for believers, it gives us an increased confidence that what we believe is in fact true, that the Bible represents absolute truth. And we have looked at a couple of different lines of evidence. One was archaeology, and the conclusion from that is that nothing has ever been discovered in archaeology that contradicts the Bible. In fact, everything that has been discovered in archaeology just confirms the Bible. Now, it doesn't necessarily prove everything that's in the Bible. We don't have archaeological evidence of the existence of Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or some of the other Old Testament figures. However, recently there has been the discovery, as I pointed out, of one inscription that related to uh, the house of David. That was the first historical evidence found uh, to uh, uh, validate or corroborate the biblical claim to the existence of a figure known as, as King David. But 
So archaeology doesn't prove the Bible, but what it does is it corroborates the picture of the ancient world that the Bible presents. And many archaeologists have set out to try to disprove the Bible or thinking they would find evidence that would disprove the Bible, and they have not. And I had a couple of quotes from Nelson Gluck and some others who have all made the same statement, that is that after years and years and years of archaeological research, they have never discovered one thing that contradicted what the Bible said. So that was one line of evidence. The other line of evidence that we're looking at is the evidence of biblical prophecy, the evidence within Scripture of prophecy. In fact, the Bible uses prophecy in the reality of of divinely revealed uh, information about the future as evidence that it is from God. And we looked at a couple of passages by way of introduction last time, which I'll review. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, where God says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God. There is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. This is what distinguishes, one thing that distinguishes the God of Christianity, the God of the Bible, from the gods of other world religions is if you can look in vain in other religions in the Quran, in uh, the Bhagavad Gita, in any of the other religious books, Confucius or whatever, and you will not find predictive prophecy. You will find that in Scripture and in enough detail to where it can be corroborated. So Isaiah 46.10 says that He is a God. Our God is a God who declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my good pleasure. The divine standard for prophecy we saw was that it would come through to the minutest detail. Everything had to come true. If one detail was wrong, if they were 99.9% right and 0.1% wrong, then they were to be stoned. So it's an absolute criterion. This is found in Deuteronomy 18, 20 and following. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. In fact, he needed to be executed. And then we looked at a claim made in Isaiah 41. And this is God challenging the false teachers in Israel. He said, present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reason, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things what they were that we may consider them and know the latter end of them, or declare to us things to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God. Yes, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and see it together. So the challenge from the Scripture to all other world religions is, show us the future. If you really claim to be absolute truth, to be divine, have your source in divine uh, revelation, then you will be able to show the future. Biblical prophecy I defined last time as a declaration of future events which includes sufficient detail as to exclude human generalizations and vague predictions 
human conjecture or probabilities, and which includes facts and details which only God could know. So it is self-authenticating because there's details there that are um, not, you can't just guess. You can't come up with on the basis of trends or cycles in history or, or something like that. And I pointed out, as an example last time, one prophecy in the Old Testament. In Isaiah, we looked at the prophecy of, against Tyre and the destruction of Tyre, and that was in, uh, excuse me, that was in Ezekiel uh, 26 to 28. And in Ezekiel chapter 26, there is a detailed uh, description of how Tyre would be destroyed. And Tyre was a major commercial port in the ancient world. And the prediction was that it, the, the city would be not only destroyed, but that it would be scraped down to the bare rock. And eventually, the only thing that would take place there was that fishermen would spread their nets to dry them on the rocks. And that's exactly what happened in history. The uh, city was initially destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. The prediction was uh, the original uh, prophecy was given about three or four years before Nebuchadnezzar's uh, original assault. And Nebuchadnezzar surrounded the town. We saw surrounded the city for 13 years. The people just evacuated off, off the coast to an island that was a half mile off the coast. But there was still a... But So when um, Nebuchadnezzar finally breached the walls, there wasn't a whole lot of booty left for him to take. But he pretty much destroyed what, what existed of Tyre, but not in fulfillment of the prophecy. And then we saw that about 150 years later, uh, that or 250 years later, Alexander the Great came along, and in order to get out to this now island city of Tyre, he took all the dirt, all the debris, everything that had been left over from the earlier uh, destruction, and just used that to build a causeway out to the island city of Tyre. And the result was that they scraped everything down to the rock tops in detailed fulfillment of the prophecy given in Ezekiel 26. Well, this morning I want to look at some other prophecies in the Old Testament. Uh, there are numerous prophecies that we can go to that were fulfilled in the Old Testament, but one of the more interesting ones is Nineveh. Nineveh was, like Tyre, one of the most significant and populous cities in the ancient world, probably more so than Tyre, almost up there with the significance of Babylon. Uh, uh, Nineveh was located on the eastern bank of the Tigris River. It's opposite the modern city of uh, Mosul, which we see on the news quite frequently, located in northern Iraq. Nineveh was originally founded by Nimrod, along with Babel and several other cities back in Genesis 10, 8 through 11. So Nineveh, along with Babylon, was always part of the enemies against Israel and always represented that element of the kingdom of man that was trying to establish itself over against uh, the rule of God among men. The ancient city of Nineveh was quite impressive, one of the most impressive cities in the ancient world. The city was walled. It was the wall was approximately three miles long, or the city itself was approximately three miles long and about a mile and a half wide. 
so that the wall that encircled the city was about eight miles in length. It was an enormous wall. It was quite thick and provided protection. But Nineveh was like most uh, major urban areas today, was also a city that involved a number of smaller suburbs that were outside of the walls. And this was a, a city that became, or that reached its heyday in the 8th and 7th centuries B.C. And let's put a little timeline up here so we can orient to this. This is 800 B.C., 700 B.C., and 600 B.C. This period here is the 8th century. This period here is the 7th century. Okay, now, from the 12th century on, okay, from about 1150-ish, approximately, from about 1150 B.C., which is during the, the latter period of the time of the judges, about a hundred years before Saul became uh, the first king of Israel. So from the 12th century B.C., uh, Nineveh was a royal residence for the Assyrian kings. And then in the time of Sargon II, in 722 B.C., it became a it became the capital for the Assyrian Empire. Now, Nineveh is most often thought of in reference to Jonah's ministry. Now, Jonah lived sometime here at the beginning of the 8th century B.C. He, he lived during the reign of Jeroboam II, and his dates are 793 to 753. 793 to 753 B.C. That's uh, Jeroboam the second. Now, we don't have a precise date on Jonah, but we know that he was alive during the reign of Jer- Jeroboam the second. So that puts him in the latter part of the, or the first half, rather, of the 8th century B.C. Now, let me remind you about Jonah. Remember, Jonah was a prophet in the northern kingdom. Jeroboam II was an evil, rebellious king, introduced uh, more extreme forms of idolatry into the northern kingdom. And Jonah was a prophet in the northern kingdom. And the major enemy at that time was the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire was the great evil empire that, that lurked on the fringes of the northern kingdom of Israel. And they knew that at any moment they could be gobbled up by the Assyrians they had to pay tribute to the Assyrian kings at times as they were being dominated. And so it, the, the Jews the, hated the Assyrians more than anything because this is their enemy. This is who is out to destroy them. And so God appeared to Jonah and told Jonah that he had a mission. God was going to, and this is an example from the Old Testament, of the missionary thrust uh, in the missionary thrust into the um, to, to the Gentiles. So God was going to send Jonah to take the gospel to them with a message of grace that they had. Let me fix my wires again. Everything fell off. Okay. Um, as that God was going to give 
Nineveh grace before judgment. And the warning was that if the Jews did not, I mean, that if the Assyrians did not repent, that means to change and turn to God, God was going to destroy Nineveh. And so, of course, everybody's familiar with the story. We know that Jonah didn't want to do that because this is their traditional enemy. And like many people, he's prejudiced against the uh, enemy of his people. So he decided to hop a freight freighter to uh, Spain or Tarshish. And on the way, they God sent a storm, and uh, the, the ship is about to sink. And, of course, the sailors believe that it's, Someone on the ship at fault, and finally Jonah confesses he, that he, it's his fault. He's running away from God, and God has sent the storm to stop him. So the sailors throw him overboard, and God sends along a great fish, not a whale. It doesn't say that in the text. It says a great fish who swallows up Jonah and gives Jonah a ride back to uh, home port. And regurgitates him up on the beach. Now, that had a number of interesting effects on Jonah, not the least of which was uh, making him uh, uh, smell good. And uh, he was the stomach acids of the fish would have bleached him white, so he had an extraordinary look that would have called attention to him. And I'm sure he probably couldn't stand his own smell, so he probably took a bath before he got to Nineveh. Nineveh was a a good distance away, but he made his way to Nineveh, and he began to proclaim the gospel. And the Ninevites responded positively. And so Nineveh was preserved for about 150 years before they were uh, finally destroyed. And during that time, Nineveh and Assyria reached its golden age. So if we look at our timeline, we see that one of the greatest rulers of the Assyrian Empire was Sargon II. And from the time that he uh, took the throne in 722 B.C. to 702 B.C., Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. He was succeeded by his son Sennacherib, who continued to expand the city, and he continued, he had some uh, building programs and some urban uh, development programs, and he built various temples and palaces and increased the fortifications around the city so that it appeared to be impregnable. Now, one of the things that they had to do was they had to solve a slight problem. They had what we might call a drainage problem. They were right on the Tigris River, and when they would have floods upstream or rain upstream, it would bring floods, and the city would flood. So he built a dam on the Tigris about 40 or 50 miles north of the city in order to prevent this. He also extended the fortifications and built a wall that was 50 feet high and extended around the city for, as I said earlier, about eight miles. So this thing's about 50 feet high and about 20 or 30 feet thick. Now, they believe that this is going to protect them. So this has established their their strength. They've developed two things. First of all, they've got a dam to prevent the water from flooding, and then they've got these high walls. And Sennacherib... Sennacherib II lives from 
or Sennacherib lives from 704 to 681. 704 to 681. And this is the golden age. He as he develops his dam, they develop various irrigation uh, systems and aqueducts to bring water into the city. And it is the most modern of ancient cities with uh, all of the conveniences of running water. But God had prophesied that they would be destroyed, and this prophecy is given in the book of Nahum. So turn in your Old Testament. This is the area that's not where the pages aren't turned or dog-eared because you haven't been there in a while. Toward the end of the Old Testament in the section known as the Minor Prophets, it's after Daniel and before Malachi, My, uh, Nahum is located after the book of Micah and prior to the book of Habakkuk. Incidentally, Nahum's hometown was Capernaum. Capernaum means, Caper means his village, and then Nahum is this village of Nahum. So Capernaum, where Jesus uh, preached, where Peter lived, was the hometown of Nahum. Now, if you look at the first verse of Nahum 1.1, we read the burden against Nineveh. This is the judgment of God against Nineveh. The whole book of Nahum is about God's destruction of Nineveh. It's not about the Jews at all. It's all about what God is going to do to Nineveh. In verse 8 we read, But with an overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of its place, and darkness will pursue his enemies. Verse 9, What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. And so the prophecy is that there will be a destruction. Destruction will involve a flood, and the destruction will be a permanent destruction. In chapter 3, in verse 10, we're given a little more information. I'm just hitting some high points in the book. Uh, yet she was carried away. This is a rehearsal. Remember, this is a prophecy that was written. There, there's no date. There's no marker in Nahum. But uh, Jewish tradition places it in the uh, 7th century B.C., just a few years prior to the destruction of Nineveh. And so in verse 10, Nahum writes that she was carried away. She went into captivity. That is, Nineveh is completely destroyed, captured. All of her inhabitants are, are taken and sold as slaves. Her young children also were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They, they cast lots for her honorable men, and all her great men were bound in chains. And then if you skip down a couple of verses, verse 12, all your strongholds are fig trees with ripened figs. If they are shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. And the picture here is that because of the wickedness of Assyria, they were ripe for judgment, and all you had to, all they had to do was to be shaken, and everything would just fall apart. We can make an application to today. Nahum makes it clear the nature of the judgment. It would involve a flood. In Nahum chapter 2, verse 6, we're told, The gates of the rivers are opened, 
and the palace is dissolved, completely destroyed. Uh, verse 9, uh, uh, Nahum chapter 3, verse 9 also indicates that this would be a complete and total destruction. And this is exactly what happened. There were, in 612 B.C., there was an alliance of Medes, Babylonians, and Scythians that attacked, completely surrounded Nineveh and attacked it and had a two-month siege. As part of their strategy in taking the city was to destroy the dam on the Tigris so that the water would flood the city and dissolve the sun-dried brick out of which the city was built. And so... Nahum correctly prophesied the means of its destruction, that it would be as a result of this overflow of of water, and everything was wiped out. Nothing remained. No one could find any evidence of Nineveh a hundred years later. Its remains were not discovered until the mid-19th century. And even to this day, they have not been able to excavate all of Nineveh simply because there are still some settlements there during the period since the time of Christ. There have been various uh, settlements there, so there are cemeteries, there are other things built there, and it's impossible to go in and do excavation in areas where people are living. But this is just another example of the detail of prophecy given ahead of time. It's predicted prophecy. Of course, how, how is this challenged? It's challenged by saying that, oh, these, these books, these prophecies really weren't made in advance. They were made after the fact. This is why we take so much time to establish the dates of these, these books, is to show that they were written at the time they claim to have been written, and that validates the predictive element of prophecy. Not only are there various historical events, that were prophesied down to minute detail in the Old Testament. But there are a number of prophecies about the Messiah. And I have a list of ten prophecies here. There were approximately a hundred prophecies in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in the first advent of Jesus Christ. There are over two hundred prophecies in the Old Testament related to the Messiah. But most of them, that um, the ones that haven't been fulfilled, will be fulfilled when he returns at the second coming. Now, we learn a couple of things from looking at the prophecies related to the Messiah. Number one, prophecies in the Old Testament are fulfilled in literal detail. They're fulfilled in literal detail. They're not symbolic. They're not allegorical prophecies. They are literal. That gives us a clue as to how to interpret other prophecy, unfulfilled prophecy in the Old Testament. Second thing we learn is that there were the vast number of prophecies would be impossible to fulfill unless they came from God, unless there was a supernatural element. You, the, the odds of even ten of these coming together in one person are astronomical. I uh, think uh, Josh McDowell in his book, uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, uses an illustration, and he may have picked it up from uh, uh, another book by a man named Peter Stoner called The Science Speaks, I think it originated with Stoner, 
where he said that the odds are such that if you were to cover the state of Texas, now let's uh, let's bring that into your frame of reference. The state of Texas is about twice the size of New England, all of New England, maybe uh, including New York. It's a, from uh, Beaumont, which is down in the southeast corner just before you get into Louisiana, from Beaumont to El Paso, as you go across Texas on Interstate 10, is about 950 miles. And then if you go from uh, uh, up around Dalhart or uh, north Texas in that area all the way down to Brownsville, which is in the southern tip, uh, that's around 900 miles. So we're talking about a tremendous piece of real estate. So if you take the state of Texas and you fill it up with uh, silver dollars, back then you still had silver dollars when this was first developed, you fill it up with silver dollars up to a depth of four feet. Just think about that. Think about how many silver dollars there would be in this church if you filled it up to a depth of four feet. Well, we're filling up the state of Texas to the depth of four feet with silver dollars, and one of them is marked. And so you're going to stir the whole pot, and then you're going to blindfold somebody, and the chances that of, of them going out and picking that marked silver dollar are the chances that only ten of these prophecies, the ten predictions, could come true in the life of one individual. Now, we're not talking about simply ten predictions in the Old Testament. We're talking about a hundred predictions in the Old Testament. So that makes the odds astronomical, impossible, unless there is a uh, something supernatural going on, unless there's a God who is in control of these prophecies. So let's look at some of these prophecies. First of all, Isaiah 7:14 Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and she and shall call his name Emmanuel a prediction of the virgin birth that the Messiah would be born of a virgin this is fulfilled of course in Matthew 1:18 24 and 25 and of course the way the uh naysayers will attack this is to claim that this A, this doesn't mean virgin, and we have gone through the study here, and the word for virgin here, Alma, always refers to a young unmarried woman, and it never refers to a young woman who has been married before. And the the Jews in the 2nd century B.C., 150 years before Christ, when the Jews translated the... Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, and it's called the Septuagint. When they made that translation, they understood that the Hebrew word Alma here referred to a virgin, not to just a young woman. And so they translated it with the Greek word Parthenos, which clearly means a virgin. Furthermore, God is giving this as a sign, and he would not be using a young, unmarried woman who is conceiving and giving birth to an illegitimate son as a sign. So it's clear from the text that this is talking about uh, a virgin. So Isaiah 7.14 is the first prophecy. Second prophecy is going back back a little further. It's from Genesis 49.10 that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah, and Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. Genesis 49.10 says the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Now, I'm skipping over a whole line of prophecies here. 
I could also refer to Genesis 3.15 that talks about the fact that the Messiah would be born the seed of a woman. Talk about Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that talks about the fact that it would, the Messiah would be a descendant of Abraham. Other prophecies in uh, Genesis that talk about the, that he would be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and uh, Jacob. A star would come forth. From Jacob, and even that is a prophecy that the sign of his birth would be a star. I'm ignoring all of those. We're just focusing on the one that he's a descendant from the tribe of Judah. That's fulfilled in Luke chapter three, verses twenty-three and thirty-three. Luke three twenty-three and thirty-three. And third, the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem, according to Micah, Micah five two. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. This, of course, is fulfilled in uh, Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke uh, chapter uh, 2 and 3. Then we have his the prophecy in Isaiah 9-1 that the Messiah's ministry would begin in Galilee. Isaiah 9-1, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. This is a prophecy indicating that he would come by the way of the sea in Galilee of the Gentiles. This is fulfilled in Matthew 4, 12, 13, and 17. Fifth, we're told that the Messiah would enter into Jerusalem on a donkey. He would enter into Jerusalem on a donkey. Uh, this is prophesied in Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly, and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And this is fulfilled in Luke 19, 35 to 37. Another prophecy, just a few relating to the crucifixion, that he would uh, be silent before his accusers. Isaiah 53, 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And this is fulfilled in Matthew 27, 13, and 14, that after his arrest, between the time of his arrest and the time of the crucifixion, when he was beaten, when he was scourged, when he was uh, abused in numerous ways, he and falsely accused, he did not open his mouth. It was not until the sins of the world were poured out on him that he first opened his mouth, and that's when he screamed out to the Lord, quoting from Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? After the crucifixion, his body was taken down off the cross, and they put him in the tomb belonging to Joseph of Arimathea. This is prophesied in the Old Testament that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. Isaiah 53, 9, They made his grave with the wicked, uh, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. This is fulfilled in Matthew 27, 57 to 60. His grave was made was with the rich. 
Uh, he was to rise from the dead. Psalm 16.10 says, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. And this verse is quoted by Peter in Acts 2.29-31. Acts 2.29-31, indicating that this applies to the Messiah. His body would not be left in the grave to become corrupt. That's the application of of uh, Psalm 16:10 it's kind of an odd note but what you see in uh, a distortion of this in eastern orthodoxy especially in russian orthodoxy every year when i go over to kiev one of the things that we do is we we go to the lavra lavra is a monastery and uh, seminary there in kiev and down in the in the lavra they have these these tunnels these caves that have been dug out through the centuries and when the first two monks came there in uh, Eastern Orthodox monks came there in the 10th century. They lived as hermits in these in these caves, and they, and they died. They would uh, put their bodies in there, and the bodies apparently there was something in the air or that sort of a natural mummification pro- process. And so down through the centuries, all of these monks that die, they put them in in little little caskets and there's a glass top and and the people go down there and they venerate the remains and and you can um, look inside the glass top, top and you can see the the um, the magnificent robes that they're wrapped in every year somebody has to change their clothes and their argument is that uh, see they're holy because their bodies haven't corrupted so they they completely distort the meaning of this yes those bodies were corrupted they're they're mummified but that is not what uh, Psalm 16.10 refers to. It refers to the fact that there would be no deterioration in the grave whatsoever, no mummification, nothing, because there would be a resurrection. A ninth prophecy is that Jesus, Jesus would be betrayed by a friend, Psalm 41.9. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel Against me, and this of course refers to the betrayal by Judas Iscariot. The Judas Iscariot, one of the uh, twelve disciples, would betray Jesus at his arrest, and this is what he did in the Garden of Gethsemane. As Judas came up and indicated who he was by kissing him on the cheek, this was fulfilled in Matthew twenty-six. 49. And he did it for a price. He did it for 30 pieces of silver. And this is a tenth prophecy I'm mentioning this morning. And this was prophesied in Zechariah 11, 12. Uh, Zechariah 11, verse 12. Then I said to them, if it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. So here we have 10 Prophecies, only ten of approximately a hundred prophecies in the Old Testament that are all literally fulfilled in the first advent. Now, this gives you an option. Either this is just pure chance, which, as I've already indicated, is just impossible, or this means that the God who made the heavens and the earth has actually spoken into space-time history, and he has communicated to man. And this is evidence that the Bible is not something that men put together, but is a supernatural book revealed by God. But one of the most compelling prophecies in the Old Testament is found in Daniel chapter 9. 
Daniel chapter 9, and is a prophecy of Daniel's 70th week. So turn in your Bible to Daniel 9, 24. You ought to have this passage um, marked and highlighted. It's one of the most significant prophecies in all the Old Testament. It has tremendous, uh, tremendous detail. Daniel 9:24. 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. The 70 weeks is a time period. It's not 70 weeks. That's a mistranslation. In the Hebrew, it's literally 70 periods of seven. So 70 times 7 is going to be 490. So we're talking about 490 time increments, either 490 days or 490 months or 490 years. And the four, let me tell you, 490 days or months doesn't fit anything. It's a period of 490 years that have been decreed for your people and for the holy city. So your people, this is uh, Gabriel talking to talking to Daniel and giving him the, the details. And he says that these 70 weeks have been decreed for Israel. So this is the time frame for the nation Israel. And it has to do with the purposes that God has in mind through Israel to finish the transgression, that is their rebellion, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, that's establishing the kingdom, to seal up vision and prophecy, that is means to bring to an end and culmination all of the prophecies of the Old Testament, and to anoint the, the most holy place. And then in verse 25 we read, I'm going to change this, I don't know why this has uh, shrunk. There we go. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So you see, the prophecy is giving precise parameters that from the from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, not just any decree, not a decree to go back to the land, not a decree to to re-inhabit Jerusalem, but a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And there's only one decree that fits that parameter. Until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So seven and 62 is 69 weeks. So the whole period is 70 weeks, but the period from the beginning, the issuing of a decree... To the coming of Messiah is 69 weeks. And then we're told it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. And what that means is the city will be built again with a wall, with fortification, and it will, and it will be done in a time of distress. Now we know from history that at the time that this was, this prophecy was given to Daniel, Daniel is in Babylon. He's the uh, prime minister in Babylon. He is the Jews are out in captivity. Jerusalem is in ruins. The temple has been destroyed, and there is no hope that they will be returning to uh, the land. And yet, just a few years later, uh, Cyrus would give a decree to for the Jews to go back to the land, not to rebuild. 
uh, this, the, the walls and the fortifications, but for them to go back to the land. This was after the Babylonians were defeated by the Medes and the Persians. Now that's a fulfillment of prophecy because Isaiah had prophesied that the one who would send them back was, would be named Cyrus. So that's a fulfillment of prophecy. That's another example of scripture. And of course, Isaiah wrote some 200 years before, uh, Cyrus existed. It can't be after-the-fact history. Now, in verse 26, the prophecy goes on to read, that after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And that's a prediction that, once again, though, though Jerusalem was going to be rebuilt in times of distress, and it was because when, when Artaxerxes finally gave the decree for them to rebuild the city, and sent his cupbearer Nehemiah, that's what the book of Nehemiah is about, sent his cupbearer Nehemiah back to oversee the rebuilding of the fortifications in Jerusalem. When Nehemiah got there, there, he had to deal with all sorts of insurrection. There was a group of people who the Assyrians and the Babylonians had resettled into that area, and they didn't like the fact that the Jews were coming back to their land, and so they were engaged in a lot of terrorist activity in order to stop the rebuilding of the, the walls and the fortification. Sort of sounds like the forerunners of the present Palestinian situation. And that's exactly the, the parallel. There were these people there who weren't Jews, and they resented the fact that the Jews were coming back to the land that God had given them. So it was built, those walls were built during the time of Nehemiah, during a time of distress, just like verse 25 had predicted. Then verse 26 says there could be another time later, after the 62 weeks, which would be 483 years after that decree, that the Messiah would be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come would destroy the city and the sanctuary. And that was fulfilled in 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed. And the verse concludes by saying, And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. Now verse 27 goes on and gives a prediction about what takes place during the tribulation, which is outside the scope of this study. So let's look at how this uh, this looks. There are several decrees that are thought of or utilized in the Old Testament as possible. There's Cyrus' decree in 538 B.C., but that was just to resettle the land. There was another decree by Darius Hystaspes, which is mentioned in Ezra 6, but that was not to rebuild the fortifications and the walls. The first decree of Artaxerxes Longomanus was given in 457, and that had to do with rebuilding, uh, rebuilding the city, but not the fortifications. The only decree given in the ancient world for rebuilding the wall was the second decree, the second decree of Artaxerxes given in 444 BC. So that's your starting point. 444 B.C. Now, let's. I've got a chart here that will map this out. The decree to restore was given on March the 5th, 444 B.C. This is mentioned in Nehemiah 2, 1 through 3. Now, we can date that precisely because we know from archaeology that the uh, king of the Persians, Artaxerxes, would give these decrees at the first of the month. So according to their calendar, uh, and transferred to our calendar, 
Uh, that would be March the 5th, 444 B.C. Now, the passage says that there's going to be the, this first period from the decree to the cutting off of Messiah is seven weeks plus 62 weeks, which ends up being 69 weeks or 69 periods of seven. Or a hundred and, uh, or let me see, seven times seven is 49 years, and 49 times 360 is 17,640 days. Now, we know that uh, these are 360-day years because in Daniel 9.27 it talks about uh, a half a week. That uh, would be three and a half years. This is also referred to under the nomenclature time, times and a half a time in Daniel 7.25 and Daniel 12.7 and Revelation 12.14. Revelation 12.6 refers to that same period as 1,260 days. So when you divide that by three and a half, you come up, come up with um, the fact that these are 30-day months. So a year then would be 12 times 30 or 360 days. Now, when you put all this together, you take 69 uh, times 7 times 360 equals 173,880 days. So from the period of the, going, of, the, of the decree to the cutting off of Messiah is 173,880 days. From March 5th, 444 B.C. to March 30th, A.D. 33, is 173,880 days. Now, the reason you, when you come to March 30th, A.D. 33, this is the day that is the original Palm Sunday when Jesus enters into Jerusalem on the back of that uh, foal of a donkey is prophesied in uh, Zephaniah or Zechariah. So Daniel predicts to the day the time that the Messiah would enter into Jerusalem. And you can verify this a number of different ways, uh, which I don't want to go through the math on that today. So Daniel 70 weeks goes from the period to restore, the decree to restore in, on March 5th, 444 B.C., to the cutting off of Messiah, which is March 30th, A.D. 33, which is his triumphal uh, entry. Let me go back a minute. I just saw something I didn't explain in that previous slide. On That's right, March 30th, A.D. 33. So that's, that's right. From March 5th to March 30th, A.D. 33, which is when you have the triumphal entry, according to Luke 19, 28 to 40. Then the Messiah is cut off, and you have seven years left, which, of course, will be fulfilled during the tribulation. This is one of the most phenomenal prophecies in the Old Testament because it lays things out to such an incredible detail. Well, that runs, takes us through several Old Testament prophecies. What about the New Testament? Well, in the New Testament we have Matthew 24.2. Matthew 24.2, the disciple, Jesus has entered into Jerusalem after, this is after the, uh, his triumphal entry on March the 30th of 33 A.D., and he is looking at the city, and he has already wept over the city, and the, his, and the disciples ask him uh, what the signs will be of his coming. 
And as he answers that question, in Matthew 24, 2, he says to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. He's looking at the temple, and he predicts the fact that the temple is going to be so destroyed that no stone will be left on top of another. It will be completely removed. And this is what happened in 70 A.D., In fact, in the heat of the burning of the temple, the gold was melting and running down between the cracks in the stones in the foundation. So the Roman soldiers, in order to get to the gold, were digging up the building blocks of the temple in order to tear everything down to get to the gold. And, of course, his prophecy was fulfilled. But Jesus gave the prophecy in 33 A.D., and it was not fulfilled until 70 A.D., and it was a perfect fulfillment. Now, years ago, someone asked me a question. I didn't know the answer to it at that time, uh, but I've discovered it since. What about the Wailing Wall? The Wailing Wall was simply a retaining wall on the Temple Mount, but it was not part of the Temple structure. But it's the only thing left of that whole uh, Temple environment. But when Jesus makes this prediction, it would not include the restraining wall. That's not part of the Temple itself. But because that's the only thing that's left from that time period, this is why the Jews venerate the Wailing Wall. But it was not part of the temple structure itself. Now, all of this is simply to show that the Bible has a tremendous uh, prophetical example showing uh, how things were fulfilled and the detailed predictions. Once again, validating the fact that this is not just some book written by men, but is a book that was revealed by God to men. Now that we have gone through this section of the study, the next question we need to ask is, well, how did we get the Bible? How do we know that we really have what was originally revealed? Wasn't it, hasn't it been translated many times? Uh, Hasn't there been corruption over the years? How do we know that we can trust it? How do we know that it hasn't been changed? How do we know that it really is the same as was originally revealed? And we will look at that in the next couple of weeks under the topics of how we got the Old Testament and then how we got the New Testament. And then following that, we'll look at how we got our English Bible, the history of our English Bible, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word today, to see that there is clear evidence that this is a unique book, that you have revealed this to us. And, of course, the most important message in the Bible is that of our salvation, that you sent your Son to die on the cross uh, as our substitute, to pay the penalty for our sins, and that this salvation is by grace. It's free. It's not based on who we are or what we do or any human factor, but it's based on uh, who you are and what you have done for us. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All you have to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone, and at that instant you have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would uh, challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.